Praise the Lord, saints. God is good. So this is one of my, one of the passages here. I believe we're on week, week nine, one of the passages who, the passages that help the preachers the most. This is a passage that uh, should give us confidence in preaching the gospel to our unbelieving friends and neighbors. The other thing about this is, is that uh, my wife was kind of making fun of me earlier, and she said, how are you going to preach an entire sermon on one passage of Scripture? And I responded, you clearly don't know me that well. <laughs> so, yes, we're in Romans 1.16. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Oh, Lord, we need you, oh God. Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit to preach your word to your bride for your glory. God, I pray that you would strengthen all of us according to your word. God, help us by the aid of your spirit to cling to your testimonies so that we would not be put to shame. Father, turn our eyes from looking at worthless things. Confirm your promises to us through your scripture. Speak to us, O oh Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What is it about this revelation of God's heart, this record of a life that is both truly human and truly divine, of a death as majestic as this, and of a glorious resurrection that would bring about shame in the heart of any believer? Why do we find not only in Romans 1.16, but in other places in the New Testament, the possibility that a Christian may be ashamed of this glorious gospel. And what about the gospel would move Paul to declare, I am not ashamed? Family, I submit to you one reason many Christians are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel is the fact that the gospel reveals the eternal love of God, but does so under conditions that remind people of all that we have done to forfeit this love. The gospel tells people of heavenly peace, but it demands in order to receive it that we have to bow, to, bow the knee to God, accept it unmerited apart from anything that we can do. And the gospel reminds us, once saved and delivered, we are now the property of our deliverer. We are not our own, but we are bought with a price. And all of these truths to the unsaved ear are repulsive. However, for the person who has been saved and submits themselves to the Lord, when they look out, outside of themselves, to the world of unsaved men, we are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And why is that? Because we know how the gospel once repulsed and angered us. Now, I suspect we Christians at times remember our old hatred and contempt for the gospel, and we feel tempted to be ashamed of this gospel 
as these memories start to resurface when we are given opportunities to proclaim Christ to unbelievers. But family, we must overcome this temptation by shifting our focus away from our own hearts and our own feelings and memories and instead carefully examine the true nature of our glorious gospel. The only, it is only when we do this will the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel be put under our feet and the gospel be boldly on our lips. Our text is, Pastor Ed read it, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So careful examination of the structure of the book of Romans will show us an introduction in verses 2 through 7, followed by a greeting in verses 8 through 15, and then the body of the letter commences here in verse 16. And what should catch your attention is that the very first verse of this body serves as an explanation that reads, for I am not ashamed. Now the word for here could rightly be translated because. So we need to pause for a minute and think and ask ourselves this question. Does it not strike you as odd that the start of the body of a letter would be the word because? Why would Paul take this such an such a unorthodox approach to start a letter this way? So the answer lies in verse 15. The word for or because at the beginning of 16 connects to the preceding thought in verse 15, which says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome, who are in Rome. So in other words, Paul begins this letter to the church at Rome with an explanation of why he is so eager to preach the gospel to them. But for us to fully grasp the weight of Paul's explanation here, we must first understand the context of the city of Rome in the first century. Rome was a cultural phenomenon, a, a juggernaut of power, politics, and religion. There are no contemporary equivalents to Rome, and in its day, Rome had no rivals. Add to that, the religious climate was hostile to any belief that would challenge Caesar's status as divine emperor. And Christianity, with its teaching that Roman mythology was idolatry, it taught the universal guilt and universal need of every man of salvation, including Caesar, would not sit well with the Romans. Moreover, the Romans prided themselves on Roman power and prestige. Israel was a small nation conquered by the Romans with little influence or very little esteem. So for anyone to declare a message about a Jewish Messiah who was the God-man and executed like a common criminal for the salvation of the world would have invoked scorn and ridicule from, from the mighty Romans. Furthermore, the gospel had indeed created many scandals for Paul in his life. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Berea. He was sneered at in Athens. He was regarded as a fool in Corinth, and he was stoned in Galatia. Nevertheless, Paul remained eager in his mission to preach the gospel in Rome, the heart, the very heart of political power and pagan religion. So regarding Rome, one theologian said this, 
quote, Rome was a proud city, and the gospel came from Jerusalem, the capital city of one of the little nations that Rome had already conquered. The Christians in that day were not among the elite of society. They were common people and even slaves. Rome had known many great philosophers and philosophies. Why pay attention to a fable about a Jew who rose from the dead? Christians looked on one another as brothers and sisters, all one in Christ, which went against the grain of Roman pride and dignity. To think of a little Jewish tent maker going to Rome to preach such a message is almost hilarious, unquote. So Paul knew that Rome was a hostile place and that Christians in Rome had already experienced persecution. He knew that the capital city of the empire was steeped in immorality and paganism, and in, including emperor worship. He knew that most Romans would despise him and some would probably do him physical harm, yet he was eager to go there because he was not ashamed of the gospel. So what does it mean to be unashamed? Being unashamed of the gospel means not having the feelings that arise of fear of being judged by other people. It means being unconcerned of how someone's perception of you may be negatively, negatively affected on account of you being associated with the gospel. When Paul says he is unashamed, he means he feels no dishonor, no humiliation, and no public disgrace in being associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is undisturbed if the gospel subjects him to the contempt of men. He doesn't care if the gospel causes men to have a low opinion of him, and he feels no embarrassment being associated with, a mess, with the message of the good news. And given the climate in Rome, it is understandable why some believers would be ashamed. So that is why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. So for the Jews, a crucified Messiah was a scandal. As a matter of fact, the, the Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon. And to the Gentiles, a crucified Savior is intellectually weak and irrational. Also, Paul wrote to his protege, uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.18, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So, in some sense, the Lord understands. The Lord knows that the gospel will put us in situations in which we will be tempted to feel ashamed of it. He knows that the world will view the gospel as a scandal and intellectually weak, and the Lord is aware of our tendency to fear man and their opinion more than we fear God and his power. That is why the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul here in Romans 1.16 to provide us with an explanation of why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel and how we can have the same gospel confidence that Paul has. So despite the fact that 
conventional wisdom says Paul should be ashamed of the gospel, he wasn't. And the question is, is why not? Why not? When Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he gives four reasons, four reasons why he has such gospel confidence. Those four reasons are the origin of the gospel. The gospel comes from God. The origin of the gospel. The gospel comes from God. The operation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The operation of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The outcome of the gospel. The gospel saves. The gospel saves. And the outreach of the gospel. The gospel saves both Jew and Gentile. First, the origin of the gospel. So how does the origin of the gospel give Paul and us such confidence? Paul's confidence to preach the gospel springs from his conviction about the nature of the gospel itself. From the very beginning of this letter in, Rome, in Romans, in Romans 1.1, Paul's re- Paul refers to himself as Christ's slave and an apostle who was set apart for the gospel of God. So this tiny little phrase, the gospel of God, might be misinterpreted to mean that the gospel is about God. But Paul uses a particular case here which emphasizes the possession and the source of the gospel. So in other words, from the very start of the letter, in every subsequent mention of the gospel, Paul is stressing the ownership and its origin. He is declaring that the gospel belongs to God and comes directly from him. Simply put, the gospel is God's gospel given by God. It is not good news about God. It is good news from God. The gospel was given to us from the Lord. The gospel was given to us at many times and in many ways by the prophets and the apostles and fully and finally in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Family, the gospel is God's gospel. Christ is its theme, salvation is its outcome, and God himself is its origin. Allow me to illustrate how the gospel's divine origin should give us confidence. So my whole point that I'm trying to make here is is this, that you should be confident to preach this gospel because of who it comes from, right? So, my mother's family is from the South. Arkansas to be God's country to be exact, okay? And I learned two things at an early age coming from there. Two things children should never do. Interrupt grown people when they're talking and call adults by their first name. Right? You never do those two things. There was only one circumstance that would give me the confidence and the boldness to do either one of those two things. And it was if my grandfather would send me to go get one of my aunts. Right? That's the only way that I would ever be bold enough and have enough confidence to interrupt one of their conversations in any circumstance. Now, in fact, one time they were talking and I interrupted a conversation between my aunts and I walked into the middle of the conversation and said, Brenda, your daddy wants you. Now, I don't recommend any of y'all ever doing this, 
but nevertheless, I said it with complete and utter confidence. Why? Because I was carrying a message from, that, from her father. And so if we are to have the same gospel confidence as Paul, we must view the gospel in the same kind of way. The gospel is from God, our creator, the God to whom all men are subject. The gospel may be proclaimed by men, received by men, and spread by men, but it is God's gospel. God has not God has not taken the initiative to make salvation possible, but he has also given us the gospel to be preached throughout the whole entire world. Nevertheless, it originated with him. It is from the throne room of God. The the gospel originated with God. The Father supplied us with the gospel. The Son achieved it for us, and God the Spirit applies it to us. The gospel comes entirely from God, and we can therefore, like Paul, be confident whenever we declare the gospel. The second reason that we can be confident in the gospel is the operation of the gospel, the operation of the gospel. This should give us confidence. So we have two questions we have to answer. What do I mean by operation of the gospel, and how does this operation of the gospel give us confidence? So by operation, all I mean is the exertion of force or power. Power is the one thing that Rome boasted of the most. The fear of Rome hovered over the entire world at that time like a cloud. The Romans were conquerors. They had Roman legions stationed all over the known world. But even with all of her military power and might, Rome was still a weak nation. The philosopher Seneca called the city of Rome a cesspool of iniquity. And the writer Juvilna called called Rome a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the entire empire flood. So this is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel and he's not ashamed to preach it in Rome. He was taking to sinful Rome the one message that had the power to change them. He had seen the gospel work in other wicked cities such as Corinth and Ephesus, and he was confident that it would work in Rome as well. It had transformed his life, transformed the lives of his disciples, and he knew it could transform the lives of the Romans. So when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God, this doesn't simply apply to the preaching of the gospel, but the objective truth of the gospel. The gospel is the highest manifestation of God's power. It is the highest manifestation of God's righteousness and holiness. The gospel is the highest manifestation of God's grace, and it is the highest manifestation of God's love. But Paul is aware of the temptation for us to be ashamed of the gospel because he is acquainted with the hostility that the gospel arouses in unbelievers. Nevertheless, the gospel for Paul is not merely a passing truth or a report about some newsworthy events that happened in Jerusalem, but it is the word in which the will of God is accomplished. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, God's power is operational and it succeeds. 
His word never returns to him void. The gospel always, always powerfully succeeds in whatever God has accomplished, decided to accomplish. It succeeds in either moving every individual either closer or further away from the Lord. So every time you hear the gospel proclaimed, it is either softening your heart or hardening your heart. Every single time it is proclaimed. So in salvation, through the proclamation of the gospel, God's power, it takes a hold of the human heart and transforms it and causes a person to believe. In Romans, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says that the word of the cross, which is synonymous with the gospel, is the power of God to those who are being saved. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, he applies the power of God to Christ himself, who is in fact the subject of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unleashed into human history. And the proclamation of the gospel is announcing all that God has powerfully done in history to save his bride, the church. So whenever we proclaim the gospel and call people to believe, what we're doing is urging them to have faith, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We are telling them to believe that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And we are inviting men to know him and the power of his resurrection. So when Paul says the gospel is the power of God, he is saying that the message is not interesting information, but a transforming, powerful declaration. The gospel is not about the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God that pricks the conscience. The gospel is the power of God that grabs the mind and softens the heart and sanctifies the life. The gospel is the power of God that makes perverted men pure. The gospel is the power of God that makes drunken men sober. And the gospel is the power of God that makes crooked men straight. The gospel is the power of God that reveals the twofold nature of God's righteousness. It describes the absolutely holy nature of God, which subjects a sinful world to his righteous judgment. But it also describes the immeasurable grace in providing a righteousness on behalf of, a, of an undeserving world. Family, the gospel is not mere words. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is not one miracle among other miracles. It is the pinnacle of God's power, plain and simple. Paul is not suggesting that there is some magic in the words themselves, no. He is referring to the powerful effect that the gospel has when the Spirit of God applies it to a man's heart. God has acted in human history to rescue his bride, to rescue his people, and to deliver his church. He has powerfully provided signs and wonders as a witness to the revelation of the gospel. And by the power of God, he raised men from the dead. And he has, through his mighty, powerful Holy Spirit, convinced many, many people of the truth of this gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And for this reason, we should have confidence because the gospel is God's power. 
So it doesn't depend on how skillfully I deliver it. It doesn't depend on how poetically I can articulate it or how much or how little I look like the person that I'm giving it to. The power of the gospel is not in us. The gospel is the power of God. But the world doesn't believe that the gospel is the power of God. They don't see its power. They don't see its majesty. They don't see its glory. So they say scoff at it. They ridicule anyone who proclaims it. And we live among people that are hostile towards it or dismissive of the message of the gospel. And in our day and age, biblical Christianity is seen as backwards, unintelligent, and foolish. And consequently, it is rejected by contemporary unbelievers for the exact same reason it was rejected in Rome. Because they don't believe that the gospel is the power of God. So when you are ashamed or afraid to proclaim the gospel, this is what you need to remember, that the gospel is the power of God. And unbelievers need the gospel much more than you need their approval. I'm going to say that again. Unbelievers need the gospel more than you need their approval. The third reason we can have gospel confidence is the outcome of the gospel, the outcome of the gospel. The outcome of the gospel is that the gospel saves. The gospel saves. This is why you can have confidence. The gospel gives us confidence because it brings salvation. Family, the word salvation has pronoun, profound, profound significance for Paul, and it should have profound significance for us. It essentially means deliverance. Salvation is the great need of the entire human race. And if men and women are to ever be saved, they must, through faith in Jesus Christ, believe in the gospel as it is proclaimed for the salvation of their souls. And that is exactly what the gospel does. The gospel saves. It delivers sinners from the guilt, the penalty, the power, and eventually the presence of sin. The gospel saves. Salvation is the great outcome of this gospel. All that God has done in human history, culminating in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, saves. Our Lord Jesus Christ died for us so that we might live with him. We are justified by his blood and saved by him from the wrath of God, and we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, and now that we are reconciled, we will be saved. The gospel saves. The gospel saves. Our eternal destiny with God is expressed in terms of deliverance and salvation. And that deliverance and salvation was secured for us in the gospel. Salvation, the the salvation provided in the gospel defines your and you and, and, and my eternal future. Okay? And what will come of us in eternity is gloriously articulated in a simple phrase, Jesus saves. 
since it is the gospel that saves, we can have confidence because, the sal- because salvation is the goal that God has for the gospel. The Father in love sent his Son and in Christ supplied everything necessary for your salvation. The Son faithfully submitted to the will of the Father and achieved everything that was necessary for your salvation. And the Spirit, proceeding from both the Father and the Son, applies to our hearts all that is necessary for salvation. The gospel should give us confidence because it brings salvation, offering deliverance from sin, and assuring us of a glorious eternal destiny with God. The gospel saves. The fourth reason we can have gospel confidence is the the outreach of the gospel. The outreach of the gospel. The gospel saves everyone that believes. The gospel is not an exclusive message for either Jew or Gentile. The gospel is for all men because all men need to be saved. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. This was Christ's commission in Mark 16, 15. To the Jew first, this phrase to the Jew first does not suggest that the Jew is better than the Gentile, for there is no difference in condemnation or in salvation. The gospel came to the Jew first in the ministry of Jesus Christ and in the apostles. We see this in Matthew 10, 5, and Acts 3, 26. So this statement uh, to everyone who believes shows us or indicates the outreach of the gospel. So to believe is the response of the heart of a person arrested by the gospel. When a person believes the gospel, they put their faith in the message of the gospel. They place their hope in the one that the gospel announces, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they put their trust in the God from whom the gospel originates. To believe the gospel is to accept it as true and through it find eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And belief in the gospel is an indispensable condition of salvation for everyone. For everyone. So when Paul says to the Jew first, again, he does not mean any particular preference to the Jews under the gospel. The priority that Paul gives to the Jews is based on the Old Testament revelation of God and the faith of Abraham and therefore has a historical, legal, and geographical priority. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told the disciples to go wait in the upper room until power comes down so that you could be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other most parts of the world. That's just where they happen to start, right? Nevertheless, even with all of this, a, no Jew has any real legal right to the gospel or to salvation, since salvation is not a, part, a product of Judaism, but it's a product of God's grace. The faith, the Christian faith is ordered in Judaism. Abraham was saved by faith. And salvation in the Messiah is the reality and the substance, while Judaism is the shadow. 
This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in the questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are the shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Jews were the custodians of God's revelation and the people through whom Christ the Messiah came. So for this reason, they were given chronological priority. And as the Lord Jesus stated in John 4.22, that salvation is from the Jews. So in Paul's ministry, he sought out the Jews first in every new city he went to, but the priority of the Jews have now been fulfilled. So ethnicity, national origin, whatever kind of blood is running through your veins, how tall or how short you are, how much you weigh, how little you weigh, if you're a man or if you're a woman or any other human criteria, does not and cannot save anyone. All men, Jew or Gentile, are graciously invited to believe the gospel. And any person who hears the gospel proclaimed and believes it will be saved, irrespective of their background. So here's what that means for us. If you got a black friend and you're trying to witness to him, don't call me. Preach the gospel to them. Because Corey's not going to save them. The gospel's going to save them. This approach of the salvation through faith is a, not a new thing. God's not saving people based on the way that they look or the blood that's running through their veins. God is saving people through faith. So this approach of a salvation through faith is not new. It has been the way the Lord has operated from the beginning, and the biblical examples are numerous. The Lord saved by faith Abraham, a Chaldean, Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, Cornelius, an Italian centurion, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Paul, a self-righteous Jew, Matthew, a traitorous Jewish tax collector, and Timothy, uh, 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 born to a Jewish mother and a Greek father. There is no partiality with God. The gospel saves both Jew and Gentile and any who believe. Anyone who believes the gospel, no matter tribe, tongue, or nation, can be saved. Amen? Amen. Family, the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Family, Paul's gospel confidence, this is not an isolated case. So I'm not just picking one Bible verse in Romans 1.16. This is not an isolated case. Let me remind you of Luke chapter 2, verse 22, where you see a devout Jew named Simeon. That's Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. So what we see here is this devout Jew named Simeon. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would witness the Messiah before he died. So Simeon's confidence echoes that of Paul's and is grounded in these same four reasons. These same four reasons, the origin, the operation, the outcome, and the outreach of the gospel. So we see this in Luke 2, 27. Simeon, guided by the Holy Spirit, he enters into the temple just as Joseph and Mary brought the infant Jesus into the temple to fulfill the customs of the law. 
And so taking the child into his arms, Simeon blessed God and said this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory and for glory to your people Israel. That's Luke 2, 29 through 32. 29 through 32. Family, Simeon's confidence mirrors that of Paul in almost every respect, in almost every way. Just as Paul found his confidence in the gospel's origin, Simeon acknowledged that the source of this salvation is none other than God himself, which is why he refers to it, refers to it as your salvation, recognizing that the Lord alone was the architect of this divine plan to save Jew and Gentile through the Messiah. Furthermore, Paul and Simeon firmly believe in the outcome of the gospel. Simeon declared that the outcome of the gospel produces salvation and glory, emphasizing that it was prepared by the Lord himself and designed to reach out to every soul, whether Jew or Gentile. And just like Paul, Simeon attests to the power of this salvation in the gospel. He describes it as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, shining brilliantly to illuminate the path of salvation. And he describes it as glory to your people Israel, granting honor to anybody who embraces it. This salvation, this gospel, according to Simeon, possesses the power to pierce through the very soul of a man revealing their heart's disposition towards his Messiah. Which is why he says later on in that chapter 2 that Christ, this, this young baby Messiah, would be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. Both Paul and Simeon stand united, grounded in the undeniable truths of the gospel. Grounded in the undeniable truths of its divine origin, its operation to powerfully save and pierce the heart of man, its outcome to save anybody who believes, and its outreach to both Jew and to Gentile. So family, it required, required courage for Paul to bring the message of the gospel to Rome. With all of its idolatry, with its power, pride, corruption, decay, iniquity, and persecution of Christians, but Paul did not shrink back from the slander, from the ridicule, or the difficulty associated with proclaiming the gospel, and neither should you and I. The gospel, I'm sorry, not the gospel, the world, the world should not cause us to be ashamed. We should not be afraid of its threats, its offenses, nor its contempts, because the origin operation, outcome, and outreach of the gospel should give us confidence and help us to not be ashamed like Paul. Better yet, it should give us the same confidence that it gave our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us, God, to believe all that your word has said. Help us to be confident that your gospel is from God. It is powerful. It saves. 
and it is for all people. Give us the confidence to proclaim the truth of your gospel in love. Remove from us, O God, the fear of men and show us more and more of the glory of your salvation in Christ. Help us, Lord, to do these things by the aid of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.